Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Melissa Reddy of The Independent, and back from the frozen wastes of Swedish football. David Priest. A little more than a year ago, Curtis Jones announced himself by scoring his first Liverpool goal, the winner against Everton at Anfield. It was named as FA Cup goal of the season. His subsequent development has justified the hype. The cup then can still create fairy tales. Liverpool kick off the third round against Aston Villa on Friday night. Now, Melissa, I understand the temptation to rest and rotate, but let's look at it another way. Can Liverpool afford another defeat? I don't think that they're in a position to stumble any further because it's so precarious at the moment, given the shape of the squad, the injuries they've had to contend with since the start of the season and how much they've stretched themselves to cope with that while still being in a good position, but with the form tailing off a bit and with their offensive powers especially receding, you you don't want that to continue because that becomes a habit as much as winning can be. In saying all that, we know that Jürgen Klopp has always prioritised the league and the Champions League in his time in charge of the club because it just makes sense. I think this season more than ever, even in the position they're in where they will not want to suffer another defeat, that it makes sense even more than usual to prioritise the top flight in European football. That squad, especially in a defensive sense, is is way too thin to try and and fight on all fronts. And that's the point, isn't it, David? It's it's probably no longer possible for Liverpool to paper over what are ever widening cracks. Yeah, I mean, everyone seems to be seeing that the the power's on the win a little bit, and you know, this is the first real hiccup they've had in the last couple of years when they've <clears throat> been performed at the levels they have. But I think that's probably one of the problems that's. They've been performing at such a high level, along with Manchester City, that any little blip like this can be seen as a, a major cause for concern. But to be honest, looking at things, you know, they're still controlling games defensively, despite all of the injuries and missing personnel. They haven't been troubled too much in that respect. And it is just losing a little bit of spark going forwards. And I think that with regards to this FA Cup game coming up, 
you, know, you could look at it that's they've had a couple of heavy defeats by Villa in the past year, one in the cup last year, and course of seven two this season. So from that perspective, that they might be looking to to put uh, to put right a few wrongs, but I still think that's. I don't think that Jurgen Klopp will be overly worried about a defeat. Of course, they want to stop a, a, the small rot that's set in, but it's um, yeah, it's just a case of uh, of carrying on and and trying not to clog up the the fixture list as well, because we know that the complaints that have have been bounded about uh, with the, the three or the five substitutions, the argument about that. So I don't think less of a workload would be much of a problem for for Jurgen Klopp. Mm. You were you were at that seven two defeat, Melissa. Even now, if you just look at that, you know, scoreline on a on a cold page, it it just makes you blink. Were there signs that on on at that occasion that Liverpool were storing up problems for the future? You know, because essentially the last couple of months have been a holding operation, haven't they? At that point of that game, I don't think leading into it. You, you saw such a massive hiding coming. And I think that weekend was just the craziness of the season in a snapshot. It actually, everything that has happened since and the state of how wide the title race is open, for example, the surprises we've had in the season, Aston Villa's form as a byproduct as well, just summed up things perfectly I think it was also the weekend of uh, the same day actually that Tottenham ravaged Manchester United as well so it was just one of those weekends where you sit back and you're like whoa football's more mental than usual but the the problems since and I remember doing a bunch of shows after Virgil van Dijk's injury and at that stage that was the only major setback Liverpool had had and everyone was saying Liverpool could not last a season or even like a few game weeks without Virgil because he was ever present he's the reference point of the team the transformer in the back line all those things which you know is obviously a a very valid summation And then from that point onwards, you go on and Joe Gomez picks up a very serious injury. You then have Fabinho, who's the stand-in, out for over a month. You have Alisson, also sidelined for a period. And you have a very young goalkeeper, inexperienced goalkeeper in Kelleher coming in. Then you have Joel Matip with his niggling injury issues added into the equation. And suddenly you're relying on a 19-year-old centre-back in in Williams to come in and and play games consistently, which is obviously not ideal. And it's not just been... I I think, you know, as David says, Liverpool are still actually playing well defensively. They're still controlling a game in a defensive sense. But what they've lost from those injuries is the base of their attacking play because you know you've got Virgil with these long diagonals Joe Gomez usually brings the ball out of play holds it up really well same with Matip so you've lost Fabinho to the defense Jordan Henderson played there against Southampton and you're just losing the foundation really of 
of your attacks. And I, and I think that we see is impeding them. Obviously, then the forwards have lost Diego Jota, who was the informed player at the time of his injury. Thiago's only just back after being out in the Merseyside derby, which was in October. So honestly, the way they've managed to still navigate being, you know, the team to beat in the league and and progressing in Europe is astounding. But I just think the domestic cups added into the mix is just, it's a bit too much to ask of the squad. Yeah, I understand that that logic. Dave, should we look a bit deeper, you know, given you know, what uh, Melissa talked about there, you know, the, the depth and breadth of the injuries, should we look a bit deeper at the appointment of Andreas Schlumberger as, as head of recovery and performance? That whole area, will it become an area of advantage for Liverpool in the way, for instance, they found some marginal gains in recruitment? You know, part of the essence of modern football, especially at the highest level, is keeping people fit and firing, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly important, and, and I think that you, you find with some clubs that they they try and scrimp and save on um, maybe it's not the top level, but below the top level, try and skip scrimp and save and trying to get by with the with the minimum when it really is a false economy. You know, the least amount of days you can lose to injuries with players is it, it's you know it, it can be invaluable across the season, and I think that when it, when it comes to this this kind of sports science and, and medical science. To bring somebody in like that to give you that little bit of edge, like I said, it, it's it can it's not just an edge, you know. If it means the difference between a player coming back one week earlier, two weeks earlier, then that can that can be proved to be a six point difference. They can make that difference. So it's it's, it's not just a marginal game. But we spoke about this a lot about uh, at our own club about about Liverpool and how fascinating it is that players recover so quickly from hamstring injuries. Where normally you're looking at, you know, four to six weeks for uh, grade two or something like that, and then you know two weeks later, you know, you see someone like Mo Salah back on the pitch again, and you just wonder how how on earth do they do this? And of course, they've got all the re- recovery equipment of the highest level at the, at the clubs, but then again, you know, bring somebody with it, the expertise that Schlumberger has. It's um, yeah, it, it can prove invaluable, I think, and. It's a it's a great investment for for clubs to to be looking forward like this rather than just you know investing all their money in, uh, into big transfer fees and big wages. This is really where it's, it it can make have a big effect. Mm. But speaking of transfer fees, Melissa, do you expect Liverpool to pay any this January? I think it's imperative that they do look at the centre back department. They've been planning long-term for that for a while because of the, the persistent issues Joel Matip and Joe Gomez have. And it was a case of trying to find a balance. They've looked at younger centre-backs with the view of easing them into the situation. I, I don't think it's easy coming into a club like Liverpool that expect to now win the league title, expect to be in the final conversation of the Champions League. And I think they'll look at it and think, okay, we need to recruit a centre-back because of our current situation where we actually have no fit ones available. But 
what signing is going to come in and immediately slot in. Because if you're signing based on your current predicament, that is essentially what you need. Somebody to come in, go straight into the starting lineup that is reliable. That is very rare under Jurgen Klopp because it takes a while to acclimatize to his demands and what he expects from you. So Liverpool will think it that if they want to make a signing this month, especially in that area, it will have to be somebody they were ordinarily going to get. And January, I think is we all know is difficult in general to do that kind of business. But this season, more than ever, with all the complications of players not having a proper preseason initially, clubs being averse to losing any more numbers given, you know, they've got players out with having tested positive for COVID or self-isolating because they've come into contact with somebody, all that stuff. And then some of the long-held defensive targets like Ben White, it's he's, I don't think, achievable in January. Then you've got Quebec, who's young, he's 20, For his age, he's got good top flight experience, but that's at a club with no expectation and pressure. How does that translate when you come into a team now, like I said, that is just expected to be domestically and on the continent, just this super force? And, but the more I look at it from all angles, you know, the the club wanting to be responsible, not wanting to deviate from the strategy and the long-term planning and being responsible in the market that has served them so well. I just keep looking at that squad, keep looking at the injury list and and the youngsters that have to come in and, and sort of fill in the gaps. And I can't imagine it being sustainable at all. Mike, Mike just going back to Dr. Andrew Slumberger, it's you know we talk about recovery and players come back from injury, but we've seen that because of the all the injuries that they've had this season, a lot of it will be about prevention as well. I know that some of the work that he's done before has been to do with sort of body mechanics and the way that players move and whether they're moving efficiently and and that can lead you know if somebody shows an imbalance in the way that they're running or the way they're striking balls, that that can you know bring on injuries as well. So if he can come in there and and work with the players to make sure that they don't get injured in the first place, of course, some injuries are going to be unavoidable. The Van Dyke, the Van Dyke injury was unavoidable from Liverpool's medical side, from their point of view. But when it comes to muscle injuries, soft tissue injuries, even you know knee and ankle injuries, things can be done that that can be preventative, and I think they can be very important when it comes to that as well. Yeah, well, I, I suppose following up on that, Dave, you know, if you look at Villa, John McGinn had a new five-year deal in December. He's emerged as almost as pivotal a player as, as Jack Grealish within that team. And obviously last season they missed him because of injury. So that probably makes your point, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we look at, you know, we talk about it being a squad game, you know, modern football is a squad game. And it is to a certain extent, but you still want that consistency. And that's been the one of the big foundations of, of Liverpool's success has been sort of, maybe it's not the partnership with Van Dijk has been a bit of chocolate and change in there, but 
you know, three of the back four or four of the back five, including Allison, you know, have been consistent. You, your front three are always in the team when in the big games. And I think that it's, um, you know, once you've got those foundations and you only, you know, maybe changing little cameo parts with, with players coming in uh, to fill in now and again, it's it's so important that you you keep that consistency. Yeah. What do you think, think about uh, Villa's development, Melissa? I think it's both deserved and actually not surprising. Maybe their position is higher than people would have anticipated, but I watched a lot of Aston Villa last season and work with a few Villa fans, and I kept saying to them, everything apart from both boxes is is really, really good if you tighten up both those areas because they were creating a lot, not converting, and then would go down the other end and concede quite easily. And it sounds like such an obvious thing to say that, you know, just tighten up in both boxes, but it was the only thing missing from them. And like you said, in in McGinn with Jack Grealish, and then they've added the hard running of Ollie Watkins, who, even if he's not converting chances, and he, and he missed a fair few against Manchester United recently, but he is nightmarish to Mark because he's always on the move. He's always wanting to press. I think when you watch them play, they've got such a clear idea of how they want to work with the ball and without the ball. And, and it's so evident. And I think when you have that in a team, it just makes everything else fall into place. The players know what they've got to do. The opposition, even though even though they know what they're what to expect, it's still hard to plan against or or to try and and circumvent it, because the players are so crystal in in what they're doing. And you look at that United game, and I was watching it, and I just thought Aston Villa playing the, the they were the better team, I thought in possession with how they use the ball, obviously didn't take their chances, fell to a late penalty. But Jack Grealish in that game, I've never seen a player have so much of the ball and and been such a funnel and not wasted it. Every pass was intelligent, every every thought. And, and actually, when he didn't complete a pass, it was because he was fouled and he won a free kick. So I think... All the the parts that they've got there is works together really well, and they're actually they're such a pleasure to watch. And even in that seven two game, you look at the scoreline. You know we're saying when you look at it on paper, it's it's absolutely maddening. But the football they played in that game, the confidence when they're in possession, it's really good to see. And I'm happy because. W- I think we've come to realize how much pressure there is to stay in this division and to waver from your plan and your and your philosophy. But they've stuck to it. They've improved it. And it's working out really well for them. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll tell us, Dave, that you, know, you played in the most important position in the team and now you're coaching that position. In the case of Villa, Emi Martinez, did Arsenal sell the wrong goalkeeper? Yes, it's a good question. I think a lot of Arsenal fans have been asking that. I mean, in an ideal world, they wouldn't have sold either of them. They've definitely been depleted in that department by Emi Martinez leaving. 
I, th- I really think it was inevitable that he was going to leave. I don't think Arsenal could have kept hold of him, really, simply because he'd been there for so long. He- he'd waited in line. He, he you know, played for his age, he's played very few games. And it was something that he needed to, to do. He needed to get away. He needed to play games. And until that happened, even myself, you know, there was big question marks over him, even though he did very well last year. There's still big question marks when you go into uh, to play week in, week out. How are you going to cope with it? It's okay coming in and, and playing the uh, the odd game and there not being much pressure on you because you know that when the number one's fit or when Leno was fit, that he was always going to come back in. Even for himself, he doesn't know how he's going to react to that. Of course, he'll have confidence in himself, but it's about it's about being able to cope with that weekly dose of football and reacting positively to, to when things don't go the right way. Eventually, there will be a dip, even at his age, because this is, like I said, it's the first time he's real consistently played first-team football at Premier League level. And I think that, um, you know, you've got to say he's done unbelievably well and he's one of the biggest biggest reasons why along with Grealish and McGinn that they've they've been successful this season you know you, you look at a lot of his stats you know he, he best in the league in, in most areas and it's not because he's been well protected either sometimes you get uh, keepers who are up there and they have a, a real sort of solid defensive structure in front of them they're well protected it's not that he's been yeah it's not that he's been well protected at all a lot of it's been of his own doing you no know, taking pressure off very good at coming for crosses shot stopping is has been brilliant and and that's the thing he's been so reliable so consistent yeah along with those two he's uh He's made a big improvement, and and the, we talk about second season syndrome with clubs. How difficult it is to to match what 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 they've done the previous season. Sheffield United being an obvious example, you know they've hung on by the skin of the teeth, and it could have been survival mode again, but they haven't. They've gone on and they've pushed it. They're reaping the benefits. Yeah, let's look at, at, at the the third round as a whole, if we could, Melissa. Yeah, you know, we do sometimes get carried away by the romanticism of the cup, despite everything that's happened to it in recent seasons. It's a real sadness, isn't it, that you know a perfect tie, if you like, Marine against Spurs, is going to be marred because of unavoidable circumstance. Let's look at Spurs, if we could. They're already at Wembley in the League Cup final. They're looking for their first trophy in 13 seasons. This is right up Mourinho's alley, isn't it? It definitely is. I think for all the markers that we put down to decide how a team is progressing, how a manager's faring for him, it's always been silverware is the one that speaks the loudest. I don't necessarily agree with that always because I, you know, I don't think winning the FA Cup, for example, is the same as finishing second in the league if, if you've had a proper shot at the title and given it a good go. I just don't... I, I know that trophies are so important, and especially for this Spurs side, because it's been so long, because they have actually been that force that threatens title contenders, and they've been in the final, say, domestically for for a number of, of competitions, but have fallen to... Chelsea and United, I think, were their opponents previously under Pochettino. But yeah, this is set up so well for him. And what you say about the tie itself, the sadness that there's no fans. I mean, this is the biggest day in Marine's history 
you know, 127 years. This is the kind of fixture they've been waiting for. And the club is going all out and, and the town itself is so excited. So even though the game won't be the spectacle that it that it should be and that it would have been really nice to be, it's good that there is so much buzz around the town itself. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the biggest gap between teams in at this stage of the competition in its history. So it's all set out quite nicely. But yeah, I think Mourinho looking at the season will will see the domestic cups as a way to signpost the fact that this Tottenham team are not just a very good footballing side. They're now winners as well, which is what he was brought in to do. And he'll see that as a success, regardless of where Spurs finish in the league. Yeah. yeah. Presumably you played in these sort of ties before, did you, you do, Dave? And if so, what are they like to play in? Do you know what? It depends which end of the spectrum you're at. I think in, in still going into FA Cup ties, preliminary FA Cup ties with, with non-league sides or, or like it was when I was at Lincoln, was coaching at Lincoln, there's still pressure on you to to get into that third round because it would be such a money spinner for the club. But when it comes to a club like Spurs going to Marine, it depends how you look at it for as a player. And I think for, you know, we, we talked about whether Liverpool would rest a lot of their players and how they would approach the game. Would they want to win the FA Cup? And I think with, with Spurs, it's, it's a totally different sort of perspective they're taking because it's, it's a smaller side, you know. We, we've seen that, you know, it likes to Neil Warner complain about going to Stoke and the dressing room's not being up to standard Stoke. You know, they're not going to be... Cabin, though, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the, I don't imagine there'll be... Uh, the facilities would be plush at, uh, at Marine. And, <laughs> and and even though it, it can sound a little bit snobbish, it, it's, it, it, it is something that you need to get your head round. And it's for Spurs players or any team that's going to, to a low-league club... It is a, a question of mindset, how you approach it, because you know going into it, you can't get any... There's no way you can get any credit out of this game if you're a Spurs player. You go there, you win the game by how many, however many goals you want to score, they're expected to do it. You know, they're only in a, a, a situation where they can lose. From another perspective, for the, for the Marine players, I think it's, like, like Melissa said, it's such a shame that there's no fans there to make it a spectacle. And, and I think we've seen it across the board this season. Last season, teams adapted well, I think, to not playing in front of fans and adapted very quickly. And I was almost surprised that a lot of the games were, were played at such a good tempo because it could be easy just to, to switch off a little bit you know, when there's no crowd there. But also this season, I think it's the reason for the drop in, not only in, <clears throat> in standard of games, but... You know, crowds ha- add to the spectacle. They add to the excitement. They add to, you know, the, the enjoyment for the players as much as anything. It's just a real shame that they're not going to be able. The fans aren't going to be there to see because these are the moments that you know that that make uh, fans of football for kids. You know, you look back when you when you were a kid, when I was a kid, when when we were all kids. You know, there's all special FA Cup memories. Sunderland in 1992, when uh, just before I joined Sunderland, you know, the FA Cup run to the final. You know, it's those are the big games that you remember. You know, that's if there's a lot of kids in there that support Marine are going to be robbed of that this weekend. 
Yeah, I, I I found it quite interesting last night. Yeah, to to take up your point, Dave, about you know the impact of a lack of fans this season. I thought the the Manchester derby in the League Cup was actually quite intense, surprisingly so. Melissa, Manchester United, they've got Watford in a, a BT Sport game on Saturday. What is the fallout from that defeat, do you think? It looked to me that it was a almost a reaffirmation of some of the weaknesses we suspected were there all along. I don't think there'll be much of a of an inquisition or a change or any of the sort of thing because in the post match assessment Solskjaer was quite comfortable in admitting that United are not near City's level and if City turn it up, United have to be at their ultimate best to beat them and they weren't, which is an honest assessment. Maybe not what you want the manager of, of Manchester United to say against City if you're if you're a fan, but it is the truth and... It's so difficult sometimes to talk about United because they've got individual players who are capable of transforming matches and months and a season effectively. Bruno Fernandes, from his arrival in January, has been one of the most influential players we've gotten in this division and actually probably across Europe, one of the most influential in the way he's bent games to United's will. And the issue with that sometimes is if you're one or two, three people who really turn it on and are capable of winning games for you, if you're not particularly playing to your best, you will get found out, especially if you're playing against such a good team. And I I think psychologically, City were just superior as well. Yesterday, in the knowledge that this is their tournament, basically. They've been there, they've done that, they've won it, they know how to manage these occasions while United under Solskjaer are still trying to get over that, just, you know, reaching the semi-final stage and, and progressing beyond it. But I don't think for Manchester United it was the kind of result or performance that would make them sit and have to take stock and have to wonder about how they they go about things differently because what they've done in fairness to them is become Liverpool's, I think, biggest threat in the league. And I know we've spoken about the season and how crazy it is. And <laughs> it feels like every week, you know, we're just either pulling teams into the equation or, or taking them out of it. You know, it wasn't so long ago at the start of December People were saying Chelsea are going to win the league. And now, you know, Frank Lampard's job (laughs) is on the line. So it's so hard to make concrete statements about the campaign. But United have done really well in the top flight to make themselves. I, I know Liverpool are looking at them and thinking they are a big problem. But if you look at City, David, they're a bigger problem, aren't they? You know, Melissa mentioned there they're going for their fourth straight league cup win but they're on a roll now aren't they yeah i think they've been the big positive of this season for them has been that the focus has been shifted off them somewhat like melissa says about you know chelsea were were bigged up at the start of the season spurs a few weeks back were were tipped as you know could they be title contenders 
Liverpool's injury problems have, have put them on there in the headlines as well. And all the while, Man City have just been quietly getting on, just, you know, building and building and building. And, and while the focus has been off them, of course, they've had the problems with, you know, with, as a lot of clubs have had with COVID and, you know, they've not had their, their chosen strike force, the strikers. You know, De Bruyne playing a different role, but they've adapted really well. And one of the big things over the last few weeks has been development of, uh, of Diaz and, and Stones as a partnership. I think that uh, I've been really impressed with Diaz. He seems very vocal. He seems to be that figure that they've missed since uh, Vincent Company had left. And John Stones as well, you, you know, he's been left out of sight for long periods. And he, like you said last night, all he's done is just worked hard, worked hard, uh, gone away, worked hard in his game. And, and now he's ready to come back in again. And he, he looks to be a lot more sure of himself when he's in possession of the ball. Sometimes, you know, there was an accusation that he was too relaxed, that he was making, you know, taking too big a risks. Whereas now he just seems to be playing the game as he sees it. Sometimes, you've, you know, it's not about forcing the way you play in the game. It's about doing what the game asks of you. They seem to have a really good relationship together you know, a personal relationship as well. And I think that helps as well. Yeah, what about Everton, Melissa? And obviously you're around and about Liverpool. They're at home to Rotherham in the, in the Cup. Ancelotti has been, you know, quite out front. He sees this competition as an important staging post for them. How do you think the team has, has developed over the, the year or so that he's been at Goodison? I think the FA Cup is really important to Everton in the same sort of way that we discuss Tottenham but even more so because Spurs under Pochettino had framed themselves and and become a threat in the league in the domestic competitions a force in in Europe where and that's all the things Everton want to be Everton want to return to the days of being you know, one of the greats of, of English football that goes around the continent and, and stands out as well. And they're far away from that. And the signing of Carlo Ancelotti was what the club were viewing as the move to bring them closer to the point and take them beyond the line of of becoming what they view themselves as, especially with the stadium being built in the background and, and all the things that they feel are building to Everton returning as a force. Now, when Carlo came in, his first port of call was to make Everton better without the ball, give them greater discipline, really build a defensive solidity and take them from there, which is what they did. At the start of this season... They were in remarkable form and then just a few injuries and they, you know, had one win in seven, had dropped off quite a bit. But then they showed against Chelsea, Leicester, Arsenal, they went on a run and they were remarkable through it. And actually it was that game at Goodison where I looked at Chelsea and I thought, how are people calling them title contenders when they've not shown anything against a side in the top half of the table? They, they capitulate and crumble so easily. But I think what he's managed to do, Ancelotti, is mesh Everton's qualities quite well. You see Dominic Calvert-Lewin 
become just an all-round number nine under him, which people had always said that he's got all the capabilities, but you don't really see it. You need it. He needed a manager to harness it properly, and it, and Ancelotti's done that. Everton have missed Richarlison for a period, Rodriguez, Dinier, who's their creative heartbeat. And they've still managed to do quite well. And I think this, again, sometimes you need... I actually did an interview with Roberto Martinez and he was talking about his time at Everton and he said he actually didn't mind the expectations and that it wasn't really aligned to the reality of the club situation at the po- at the time. And he said he he sort of relinquished the cups to do better in the league and to try and get further in Europe. And he wondered if that was a mistake, but he thought it was the right thing to do at the time. And I think for Ancelotti at the moment, he has to prioritize the domestic competitions more because Everton aren't really, you know, at, at the very top end of the league, aren't in a position to challenge yet. And so I think the FA Cup could be very important for them. And I think they can actually do quite well in it. Yeah, traditional bit of sport around this time of year, David, is to is to look for, for upsets in, in the third round. I'm probably looking no further than, than Newport on Sunday evening. They've got Brighton at home. They've got, it, you know, everything's there, isn't it? You've got a team in Newport, which has a history of, of, of upsets. You've got Brighton basically enmeshed in a, in a relegation struggle in the Premier League. Do you agree with that? And where else do you see some um, nice little headlines being created? Yeah, I, I totally agree with the uh, Newport-Brighton game. It's it, it, it's a real tough one for Graham Potter. You know, going to a place where it, to Newport where it's, you know, the last few seasons has been a bit of a graveyard for uh, for for Premier League sides, or at least bigger clubs in there, like the Leeds and Leicester. They, uh, they beat Wofford in the EFL Trophy this season as well. It's a real tough one for him, and especially because, you know, he's in a position now where it's imperative that he gets the his Premier League form right, gets his team's Premier League form right. And how do you do that? Do you go into this game and try and get players some confidence and try and get them playing, give them an extra game to, to try and regain that form? Do you look at it and say, well, there's a chance where I might score a few goals? Do we do we gamble on playing our, our main strike force? And, and another problem that they've got is that this pitch, you know, it's, it's a really simple thing to say, but this pitch won't be conducive to Graham Potter football. Mm. Now, you know, he's still got a lot of plaudits this season, especially the games against Chelsea and Manchester United, where they d- dominated the game, they dominated possession but they just couldn't kill off the team with better players. And and I think that's the problem that he's faced this season. You know, they're a very good side, very good in possession, but when it comes to killing off teams, they don't have that cutting edge. They don't have those players. You know, you look at the Manchester United game, Martial, Rashford, Greenwood, you know, stick any of them in in Brighton's side and they wouldn't be in the predicament that they're at at the moment. So I think that uh, it it will be a a very difficult game and I don't think it'll be one that he'll be looking forward to. Mm. You know, I can I can look at West Brom struggling at, at, at Blackpool, you know, one of Sam Allardyce's former clubs. The other one, I wonder, Melissa, Bristol Rovers under Paul Tisdale, they're at home to Sheffield United. Their plight is obvious. Do you think 
their lack of confidence is so low that it could work against them or will the sort of desperation that they'll feel for getting a win of any kind see them through? Oftentimes, a change in competition can switch out your mentality. I'm, I'm sure David will have experienced that or will know of that phenomenon. Coaches speak of it. Players just think of it as a different platform, as a different opportunity. But it, I think when you're in a in a low spot of confidence and stuff, it is quite hard to pick yourself out of that state of mind. And I think Sheffield as well are in need of a victory. So I don't see it going Bristol Rovers' way, unfortunately. Okay, okay. Well, what about um, you know the, the final televised game or the final game of the third round? Stockport Town County, old football league club at home to West Ham. I know it's changed somewhat under David Moyes, but you can never really know what they're going to come up with, do you? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Premier League form, I think they're, they definitely improved this season. But going to a place like Stockport, it's it, again, you know, it won't be one that the players are. Uh, or David Moyes be looking forward to, you know, the storylines are all stacked against them. They can't win in this uh, in this situation. And uh, but from another perspective, it's good to see a, a club like Stockport County are back on the rise again. They've suffered some tough times over the last uh, ten or so seasons. Jim Gannon's back there for his third spell in charge of the club. He took them up to the uh, to the championship in his first spell there. You know, since the new owners come over, Mark Stotts last January. You know, the, the biggest thing that he's done for the club is is make sure that they're debt free, and for you know this as well as anybody at, at that level. You know, battling against financial situations is you know is a bigger battle than anything you face on the pitch. And to have the debts cleared, they're, they're investing in a new training ground. You know, they're doing well in the national league. It's looking positive and uh, similar to the, the Newport Brighton game. It's um, it's one that's very much that's stacked in Stockport's favour because it, you know they're 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 riding high and they're full of confidence and you know they'll be really looking forward to trying to take down the Premier League side. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, Melissa, we've got to put this into a broader perspective this weekend. The gathering crisis regarding COVID, Derby. We've got obvious problems. It looks like that they're fielding their under-18s and 23s in their tie at Chorley. Do you think it's fair that clubs must play if they've got 14 players fit? I don't think it is. Uh, the situation is... It's a good opportunity for the under-18 and under-23 players. Obviously, that probably would have never gotten close to the tie otherwise. But this is not the way the competition wants to go down or this is not going to feel like Derby against Chorley. I'm sure Chorley won't won't mind too much. It gives them a greater opportunity to progress. But I mean, we're now punishing teams for testing positive for a pandemic that numbers are rising throughout the country. None of it sort of makes sense to me. And I understand that it's such a difficult situation to try and wade through and work out permutations for and how do you keep 
elite football going when, you know, the rest of the country is basically shut down, all these questions, and there are no easy answers. But it just doesn't feel right. Because when you look at it, Dave, do you think the EFL were short-sighted in not proactively funding testing in recent months? Okay, they've come out with the PFA and said there's now £5 million to, to provide weekly testing for clubs. Are we sort of behind the curve in football in actually dealing with this? Okay, at Premier League level, where well, we've had 40 positive in the last round of testing, it has been it has been good and effective. But in terms of an overheated season, what's the impact of all this? I think that ultimately the impact's going to be an extended season, especially across the EFL. I think you're looking at the situation that's, that's occurred at Sunderland when they, they had eight players pulled out the squad before their game against Wimbledon, which is an ideal preparation that the field players who, who had no minutes at all this season, which is a risk in itself, injury-wise, to them. But it was a it was a case of that they couldn't afford to take the risk that they, they might forfeit the game because of pulling out. And, and I think that's been the worst thing about it. I think is the, the lack of clarity over situations like this. I think clubs, you know, speaking to, to people, so I think... I think clubs are they, they're not aware of what the criteria is. So, you know, if there is a tiny infringement on the, the protocols that have been put in place, then of course they'll have to forfeit the games. And I think that's what they're really fearful of. And Sunderland as it is, four games, one game every four days till end the season now. And you can still see that they, you know, there's going to be problems further down the line. Things aren't going to get any better soon. If anything, they will get a little bit worse before they do get better. I think that's the ultimate consequence of it all. But you're right, you see, I think that they've been very slow, AFL and uh, perhaps the PFA, in, in coming forward and, and and making sure that this happens because they're just they're only doing it because of the FA Cup games. You know, because there's a, a risk of, of cross-infection from different leagues, you know, players who are coming from environments where the protocols mightn't be adhered to as, as much. You know, you can't, you know, marine players, they they can't be put in a bubble, you know, and, and made sure that everything's stuck to like a Premier League side. So when you've got players going to situations like that against a Premier League side, then the, the, maybe the, the risk of uh, infection is greater. So, you know, it, it's been very short-sighted and I think they've, they, they should have been done a lot sooner to try and sort of, yeah, to try and put in place to, to make sure that there's, there's less risk. Yeah, and the, and there are real problems, aren't there, Melissa, in the women's game? If you think about it, the FA Cup has been compromised. They can't play second round ties as we speak. But surely, you know, there's talk about ties being decided by a coin toss. That can't go on, surely, can it? It's absolutely ridiculous. Like I said, I know it's been, you know, arduous for, for the powers that be to try and find conclusions for, you know, an unprecedented situation. But all of this is just mind boggling. And I mean, the fact that there hasn't been testing for the women's teams, again, is why hasn't there been? We're, we know what the situation is. We know that in order for, for sport to continue at the highest level, there should be regular transparent testing. And then you've got the situation as well where there are 158 elite men's teams in English football. 
and just 23 elite women's teams that can continue now under the latest guidelines. How, again, is that possible? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, th- I think actually at, at WSL level there has been testing, but I, you know, I take your broader point about, you know, why don't why don't we just look at this and just say in the way that probably they've done in the men's game, okay, if you're in the second round of the FA Cup, by definition, you're in an elite competition, you should be allowed to play in it. Doesn't matter if you're in the sixth tier, just get get on with it and get it done. I suppose, David, it doesn't help when you've got players. I won't call them covidiots, but you know, some question questionable conduct anyway. You know, Arsenal have lost three players because of you know trips to Dubai over Christmas. Players have got a responsibility in this as well, haven't they? Um, a, a massive responsibility. I mean, you know, there's no point clubs being ultra cautious in their approach and and doing everything to the letter whilst they're in the clubs when they're outside. No, they're doing what basically what they want, and I think that's, of course, I've got sympathies with their. You know, I've played abroad myself, and I've got some sympathies with players who don't have their families around them. And when you don't have the families around you, the players at the club become your family, and in that respect, I have some sympathy with them. But again, these are certainly in our lifetime unprecedented times, and needs must, and when if needs if it needs to be that you're that you're isolated as much as possible to to lessen the risk of, of infection, then you have to stick by that. And I think I think clubs have maybe been a little bit lenient because they don't simply don't want to lose their players. You know, the, the clubs are, are putting the priority of the team and their club above sort of general safety of the of the population, and and, and that's what needs to be uppermost at the moment. And it, 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 and it is a difficult time for everybody. Of course it is. But, I mean, it's they, they have to stick to, to, to what the rules are. Mike, just on, on the point about testing I was making was that, you know, testing's been provided for the non-elite male teams in any rounds of the FA Cup, but the FA aren't paying for the non-elite women's teams to be tested. That's the, the where I was heading with, with the testing. Oh, okay. Yeah, taking that point. Thanks. I suppose then, can we, Melissa, just sort of round this up now, really, uh, by looking at another aspect of the women's game? Phil Neville was due to be announced this month as Team GB manager for the Olympics. Now, that actually was that decision was meant to be ratified in in October, I believe. It now looks like he's been talking to his great mate David Beckham, perhaps coaching at Inter-Miami, which would leave Team GB in the lurch. What do you make of all that? The fact that it wasn't ratified sooner, I think, was was quite problematic because you do open yourself up now to the situation where he is free to hold preliminary talks. And from everything I've gathered, that's looking quite positive. And it, it seems like it is going to advance and that he will take over at into Miami, uh, barring any, you know, if they if they get a more prestigious candidate or whatever, but that looks like it's progressing quite well. And now you have a situation where, you know, Serena wants to remain with the Netherlands. They've got their the Olympics have been delayed, and. I just don't understand how 
this situation was allowed to happen again. It it always feels like with women's football, it's just whatever. Oh well, whatever. <laughs> and I think this sums it up again. Yeah, I suppose in many ways these problems are to be expected. The women's game is in transition. It's not immune from the issues that plagued the men's game. We've already talked about that. Irresponsible players, poor administration, single-minded, so I would say selfish pursuit of individual ambition. I suppose, was I surprised by Phil Neville's apparent contempt for the Team GB job? Probably not. There are no guarantees that the Olympics are going to go ahead. And to be honest, in any case, Neville has really never seemed truly committed to the women's game. I think he's welcome to his sinecure in the States if that's what he wants. Agree? Please let me know. And thanks in the meantime to Melissa and David and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>